Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money, I'm Glenn James. Today on the podcast, we've got a guest host. That's right, we've got Alex Nikolic, who is at Broke Girl Wealth on Instagram. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on My Millennial Money today. Thank you for having me, Glenn. Look, we're going to have a really fun time. But before we get into today's podcast, I want to thank Tal, our show partner, And who is TAL? Well, TAL, T-A-L, they're Australia's leading life insurer. TAL is committed to helping more Australians understand the value of life insurance and supporting them in their time of need. It's not their first rodeo. TAL has been around for over 150 years. And when you've been around for as long as they have, you kind of learn what matters most. They insure more than 4.5 million Australian families and they're right here supporting my millennial money. TAL, ensuring this Australian life. Search TAL online, T-A-L, or speak to your financial advisor today about how TAL can help protect you and your family. You can also head to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and I can introduce you to an advisor if you need. Okay, quickly, Alex, our census is currently live. For those who are interested in giving feedback, you can find it in the Facebook group, or there's a link in the show notes from today's episode. So I'd encourage anyone who listens to the podcast who wants to give us feedback, please complete the census. Are you a morning or night person? Oh, I have always lived in hope that one day I'd be one of those 5am people. It's never happened. I'm like you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the first question in the census and a live census update. 52.4% of you are morning people, 34.1% are night people and 13.5% said you're neither. So you ready to have a chat today, Alex? Yeah. All right. Let's pluck this chicken. Okay, so guest host Alex, we've got a question here from Elise and she says, am I better off paying into my two children's hex fees as opposed to giving them cash due to inheritance? So, I'd be looking at $15,000 each and their hex fees are approximately $30,000 each. So, what are we doing with hex? Do you have hex? I have about $80,000 worth of hex. So, me and my hex are going to be friends for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, Elise has uh, adult children, which is cool. Welcome to the podcast. But I just wanted to have a quick chat around this hex thing. Like, what's been your own view with paying down hex? Do you pay more down? Do you not care about it? Because, I mean, 80K, uh, and it's mm. public knowledge that you're a lawyer by trade. So, mm-hmm. you've done a, a fair bit of study. Uh, So, what are you doing about your own hex? And then we'll have a chat about Elise. So, I guess my two competing views on hex were, 
I earn above the repayment threshold. And so my hex does mean my tax liability is larger. And that then, because my after-tax income is lower, if I was looking to buy a house, it does have an impact on borrowing power because it's how much, you know, the bank assesses how much you have after tax. But then on the other hand, I thought to myself, well, HEX is compulsory. It's getting paid by my, you know, tax each year and it only indexes. So it doesn't, there's no interest rate on HEX. It indexes, I believe, annually. Can't quite call. Yeah, in June. That's right. And it's always set at CPI. So I think last year it indexed at like 1.8%. Now on 80K, that is still a significant amount of money. But in my view, I am utilising that extra money that I would have put into HEX by investing it. And the capital growth I can get from investing is maybe, you know, 8, 9, 10%. And I just think my money's better served in the stock market or buying a property than it could be just getting added to my HEX. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on this, um, my view is exactly like yours, but when it comes to HEX and help debt, because when and if we died prematurely, Mm. that debt is cleared, so there's no liability to the estate, my view is if you've got extra money and quite a significant HEX debt, I'm not paying any down because if something unforeseen and the worst case scenario did happen, your estate, your family, your dependents actually won't get that money. Whereas if you just invested over there, they would get that money if you were to die prematurely. I mean, that's a wild worst case scenario, but particularly because the index rate is so low and most people are earning over that threshold, and I think at the moment it starts at 1% repayment rate, we know year on year, most people are going to be paying more down than the indexed amount. So the question is, what does Elise do with 15K each for the kidlets? Oh, invest it. Yeah? Yeah, I reckon sit down with them and, you know, even put it on their super if they don't want the money right now. I mean, they're probably not earning above the voluntary contribution. So if you, if in doubt, chuck it on your super. That would be what yeah. I would do if I didn't know what to do with it. Mm. Yeah, I'd probably um, be governed by the, and here's me giving advice to parents. I've got no idea. Uh, do <laughs> you have children? Glenn's hypothetical kidlets. That's right. Do you have kidlets? <laughs> I don't have kidlets. I have small no. doglets. Yeah, you've got doglets. I mean, what I'd probably look at doing is being a little bit strategic, um, looking at personalities. Like you might have one child who's like really into investing and gets it and, you know, awesome. You could set up an investment account for them. You might have another child who's just kind of happy-go-lucky and you know that, you know, if you're investing it for them and telling them to invest it, it might not be as good because they might not appreciate it. So it could be just uh, withholding that money until there's a time where they want to buy a house to live in. Mm. And then, you know, if you're not in a position to do a parental guarantee, you might take the view that, hey, we'll pay the lender's mortgage insurance for you with that money or we'll put it towards the deposit or we'll pay the stamp duty if you can't get, you know, stamp duty exemptions for first home buyers at the time. So the the, the main thing that I like to think with inheritances is we do not put it into things that go down in value. So we don't buy cars and toys, you know, 
with the money. Sure, if you wanted to carve off a very small amount to enjoy, awesome. But if we buy growth assets for the long term, that money that's been inherited mm. will never go away. Mm. And it's also an, an opportunity that most people don't have happen often, which is for a significant lump sum to arrive into your life. And, you know, you can invest regularly, but, you know, 15K is a pretty huge jump start, whether it's a house or something else. Yeah. So I, I think hex is probably a no-go. And because honestly as well, like if they do want to buy a home one day, whether they've got 30 grand hex or back down to 15 because you've paid half of it off, their borrowing power doesn't change because it's assessed on income, mm. not the actual amount of hex or help. Um, so, yeah, I'd really just, you know, be wise, take it slow. You might even just decide that we're keeping this money against our mortgage and when each child turns 27 or 30 or whatever magical line in the sand that you want to do, uh, provided there's no other uh, estate ramifications. So I think what I'm hearing here is Elise has received some money herself possibly and she wants to give that to the children, um, which means that they won't be individually mentioned in the deceased will. Um, you might just pick a, a random age and then release the money to them for them to um, do with what they will. So, I mean, lots could go on there and um, congratulations on uh, thinking about making mm. the best use of the money. That's the underlying thing here, isn't it? Yeah. Lucky kids. Absolutely. What does Bella have to say, Alex? Bella has a really great question. Bella says, how do you assess the risk of ETFs like Crypt, HGen, Robo, etc., that are just starting? Ooh, wildness. Okay, can you enter this one and solve all our problems, please? <laughs> yes. Um well, first of all, props to Bella for asking this question because I think it's a really good one. And these ETFs are probably a little bit different in that most of the time when people talk about ETFs, generally speaking, I think the assumption is that it's passive index tracking and like broad market ETFs, whereas these three are kind of newish products in that they're thematic. So crypt tracks companies that have crypto exposure. So exchanges like I think Binance is one of their underlying holdings perhaps maybe. Um, I'll have a Google while you chat. And HGen, I don't know as much about, but it's a hydrogen ETF and hydrogen assets. Yeah, so they're looking at um, investing in companies that are in the hydrogen space. Mm. And then the final one, Robo, invests in companies that are either in robotics or automation globally. So it's a global thematic ETF. Now, in terms of risks, I mean, they're going to differ between each because they're in different industries. But with new ETFs, even just looking at liquidity, so how many people have bought in, how easy is it going to be to sell? If it's a really small fund that no one's interested in, you might find in a couple of years, it's going to actually be pulled from the market. And that's a bit of an administrative nightmare. But in terms of assessing them, I look at what are the underlying holdings? Is it passive or actively managed? And that will probably have an impact on fees. Is it performing well against the benchmark index that it's tracking? Uh, and then also, does it have a diversified 
list of companies even within those holdings because like global robotics and automation that's it's going to be hundreds of companies so what what have they chosen why have they chosen those companies and if it is an index tracking fund of course it's just going to be replicating the same companies that sit in that index what about you glenn yeah i'm thinking a couple of things um you know you've got to look at oh, i think sector risk number one and with our investing you know that old dumb rule eggs in baskets or diversification or some Great boring role. thing like that. Like, mm-hmm. why can't I just put everything in the thing that's going to make me a billion dollars overnight? I'm a bit pissed off. But, <laughs> you know, the rules of the investing world come into force and we have to diversify. So, one of the diversification rules uh, is sector. So, what sector do you have exposure to? So, there's a higher risk if we put 100% of our money in the crypt ETF, which is mo- mainly companies and exchanges in the United States that are in the crypto scene. So, we know that there's a huge risk there as opposed to just buying Vanguard Diversified Growth Fund that's spread across different countries, different um, asset classes and companies within those mm. uh, underlying holdings. So, we've really got to look at the sector-specific risk and these are thematic ETFs. So, that's number one. Number two, most of these ETFs are actually um, indexed funds. Actually, I think HGen may be active. Don't quote me on that. Let's just have a look at this live. Um, just on an example look, about sector risk, if yeah. a live example would be Ethi, which is a thematic, I mean, it's the theme is renewables and like, socially responsible investing, was heavily tech-focused and at the beginning of COVID uh, and throughout COVID has had a pretty significant bull run. I think it was like 33%. It was like the year-on-year increase because tech as a sector was doing well. But you're going to experience the flip side. So that sector risk is more intense than you would have in like VDGR because you're just eggs in one basket. When it's good, it's great. And when it's bad, it's sad. Yeah, that's right. And because like everyone knows the Tesla story that if I put money in Tesla, I'd be a billionaire by now or whatever, right? Trust me, people, there are thousands of different companies that you haven't heard of that have been flushed. Mm -hmm. So, and I I can't be bothered looking whether HGN's active or passive, but the, the thing is... If it is um, an index fund, we know that it's tracking an index. And I've just opened the website for the Robo Global Index Fund. Okay. Now, the Robo Index for the Robo ETF, which is an ETF securities ETF, the top 10 holdings iRhythm Tech, never heard of it. Brooks Automation, never heard of it. Teradyne Incorporated, never heard of it. NVIDIA, I've heard of it. They do video cards. Rockwell Automation, I've heard of it. I mean, you can have a look at the top 10 holdings and if you've heard of these companies, you can actually go and say, okay, well, they're not just having a punt here on, you know, random companies that no one's heard of. And in this instance, they have for me. And I mean, this fund, the top holding of iRhythm Tech Incorporated is not even 3%. So, you are going to get huge exposure. So, 
to that sector. So I guess what I'm saying is you can actually look at what index that the index fund and the fund manager track and you can see what makes that index up. And based on that, you can start to understand the risks involved. So Alex, for example, if I was asking the question, oh, so um, there's a new fund manager called the Broke Girl Wealth Australian 200 Index Fund, you've just started. So the risk might be your operational risk because the underlying investment, we know the A200 and the top 200 companies, they're probably not going anywhere. And my final point is with these thematic uh, ETFs, we don't want our eggs in our one basket. We don't want all our eggs in one basket. So that's when we talk about the core and satellite approach. So you might say, look, I want to make a portfolio and because I'm interested in investing, um, I want a bread and butter core. So I might have 80% in the Vanguard Diversified Growth Fund. So broad exposure across different sectors, different markets, different companies and all that stuff. But out of personal interest, for no other reason than I'm interested, I might put 10% in Robo and 10% in HGen. So you can do that. It's a free world, but we're just not putting all our money uh, on the one horse. Mm. Uh, But it's a great question, Bella. uh, And I really encourage you. And this is the cool thing, like, and we'll actually go to this question. I was going to do it sooner. Um, Jess Green's question, the internet is our friend, you know, maybe dark corners of Reddit isn't our friend, but actually looking at the actual website to, you know, beta shares or ETF securities or Vanguard or BlackRock or any of the, you know, big funds, they're pretty transparent about the funds. And because these funds are products, they've got product disclosure statements. So if you've got time, you've got time to research, right? Mm. And I set it out really, really clearly as well. So you can find things like the performance, what it's tracking. You can even find what the values, if it's a thematic fund, are behind, you know, what's the investing philosophy, why'd they create the fund. So Mm. they're a great document to look for if you want to find information about yeah, and and I will say like um, this HGen fund that's ETF securities, which we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I mean, they started it in October 2021, so it's got zero performance as a fund. But looking at the um, top ten holdings, like there's a company called Plug Power Incorporated, which is 13% of the fund. So let's have a look at Plug Power on Wiki. Um, here we go. Plug Power is an American company engaged in the development of hydrogen fuel cells uh, systems, blah, blah, blah. That company started in 1997, so they've been around. Um, its revenue is $230 million. So, I mean, it's a, they've got 835 employees. So, it's probably, and it's listed obviously, but it's, it's not the biggest company in the world. But you can start to cherry pick these things. Um, but all that to say, any investment, I don't really give a crap about the performance over the last three years. If it's a growth fund, right? I want to look at five to seven to 10 years, realistically. Mm. Jess Green, I think the wave of young people seeking financial advice is an interesting phenomenon. I can't say that properly. Hope I did. The dollar world is so much more complex than a generation ago. 
question mark. When I was 22, money felt taboo. Now I'm 37. It seems urgent and now well worth talking about. So, kind of tailing on to Bella's question, do you have any comments for Jess? So many. I completely agree that financial products, finances generally feel more complicated now. We, there's, more, there's more things to spend money on. There's less money parity to how much our parents were earning and how expensive things were at the time. And I think that taboo, thankfully, has decreased. So I'm, I hope that people feel less shame around debt. It's a lot easier to get out of debt if you're not being beaten with a stick about it. But I do think there's the internet has kind of leveled the playing field. So Hopefully it's not just messages about, you know, Kim Kardashian and Lamborghinis and living the rich life, but it's also about how do I, how do I put a budget in place? And that seems really simple, but it's actually super complicated and it will depend on your finances. But I think Jess is at that perfect age where it's never too late to start talking about it. And I mean, I, I think I feel like I was, went through puberty with so much financial anxiety. So it feels urgent to me, you know, it's felt urgent to me from 20. But it's never too late to start talking about it and talking about it to friends as well because I think investing can be, investing, budgeting, all of it can be so scary until you realise, until you start sharing knowledge about it, you know? Like even your podcast, like the fact that we're here today talking about money, this never would have existed. Maybe mm. in an advice column written by some old white fund manager from yesteryear. Who's so out of touch with the day-to-days of people. Yeah. Sounds like me a bit. I don't think so, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, while you were talking there, I was writing notes down and I've written this down in response to Jess's question you know, we have more choice than ever before, right? Mm. So that the decision fatigue is real and, and it can make people like a bit anxious or you can feel complex because with the choice and the technology piece, you know, that's the technology has led to access and the technology has led to choice. And that's why I always say just pick a horse and if it's got half a decent track record pump money into it and you don't have to move your money to a new broker or a new platform the next week if there's a cheaper one. Like you just don't. Mm. And the good thing that's happening is, yes, it can seem more complex because of the choice, because of this easy access, because of like your Insta account at Broke Girl Wealth and everyone go give it a follow and a like and as they say on YouTube, smash that like button. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Glenn. (laughs) You know, you're making it more accessible and you're trying to remove the complexity. So the top line noise, yes, it feels complex. Mm -hmm. But if we go down and even just have a look and watch some of Alex's stories or something like that, we can start to see that, oh, it isn't as complex as what I thought. Now, I think there is actually uh, more transparency than yesteryear. And because there's also no gatekeeper so, mm. in yesteryear, when I was 22 years old, because believe it or not, Jess, I'm your age. That's right. I'm in my mid to kind of a bit north of 
30s. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So, when I was 22 and feeling 22, I needed a couple of grand to invest. Mm. So, there was so much more complexity because I I had to choose an individual stock. It was hard to get a a broad-based ETF um, at the time. So, there's no gatekeeper and that's why we do these podcasts just to um, to chat about it. Now, on the urgent thing, FOMO and all the noise can make things feel urgent, uh, but I would say it's not urgent because first you need to assess where you're at and look at your own financial goals because the problem, like any of us, we're just all human. Urgency can lead to greed because you need to catch up. But the problem with greed, broke and stupid can follow greed because, you know, we can make stupid decisions because we're just human, right? When we're put under the pump. So, I think it's a great thing that we are talking about it. And I don't know if I've, I think hers was more of a comment and more of a discussion point. Mm. Um, And before we hit record, like we were both talking about the fact that, hey, if you got $1,000, you don't need to go and pay for a statement of advice to get an investment. You can search investing in the My Millennial Money Facebook group and, you know, look for YouTube videos or I don't know, like any final points on Jess's comment? I think don't be afraid of not knowing everything. You know, that complexity can, I think I hear a lot of people say, oh, it's just really hard and it's confusing and I'm just going to opt out because of that. Mm. But it's like, we all, if we just like lean into that discomfort and everyone, everyone can invest. Like there's, there's no rocket science to it, despite perhaps what, you know, the industry seems really closed. And just take your time, start making steps in the right direction and everything mm. will kind of domino from that. You don't have to know everything at the start. I certainly didn't. And I didn't and I still don't know anything. And <laughs> Well, I actually, I just want to pause there before we have a break. You know, this podcast and all that we do, it's really dangerous if I become your guru and I don't want to be your guru. I just want to be your facilitator and your discussion point because I'm only human. And, you know, we are doing this survey and we ask people's responses. And I think someone gave it the podcast, the low rating in the survey because they were disappointed in Glenn because I mentioned that I had an Apple Pay subscription that I didn't know about or something out of my Apple Pay that I didn't know about. So, he's not across his own personal finances. Well, no, it just means I'm human like anyone else. And if I subscribe to an app seven months ago and forget to unsubscribe and then it comes out, oh, what the hell's that $14 thing? I didn't like... so. I'm not your guru. I'm just your facilitator to have people like Alex come on and share their story. So, I just think, yeah, you're in the right place, Jess, because we want to dispel, um, you know, the complexities of things. Uh, But if you do want to try and understand more and you don't want to pay for quote unquote education slash advice, my first recommendation to anyone would be to call your super fund and ask your own super fund 
How do my investments work? How does all this work? Get them to explain it to you because you're a paying member of the fund and they'll talk to you over the phone and explain things in a factual way. Some super funds will even provide uh, complimentary advice to their members mm. about your own fund. So if you want free statement of advice about your super fund, call your super fund. They might be able to give you some advice and that's going to be a, a no additional cost in your life to get some really good accessible advice about real world investments. Yeah, exactly. And the best part of it is they're just a phone call away. Yeah. So, hey, we really welcome that question. But thanks, Jess, for uh, writing. And we'll take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about a savings addiction. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Okay, we are back. And your guest host today is Alex from Broke Girl Wealth on Instagram. You can give her a follow. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you do, how you started and why you started this Instagram account because it's a growing account and you seem to resonate with some people. Tell us a little bit about your own journey. Yeah, I don't come from a financial background. I'm actually a lawyer in corporate Australia and... I, I guess my money journey, like my, my money, you know, how money imprints on us at a really young age. My parents got divorced when I was younger. And I think that was like this shock to the system of realizing money can be the best tool and the greatest hindrance. Thank you. Geez, money is like love, isn't it? Money is like love. Maybe that's why we, we have so many screwed up relationships with it. Um, yeah. You've either got heaps of it or none of it. Afterpay really is like a uh, a date that just doesn't call back, it promises everything up front and then it's just like, no. Um, but, yeah, and I, I got into some credit card debt, you know, as 18-year-olds as do, clawed my way out of it and I started investing. And when I started there was – you know, there was a few people on Instagram talking about debt-free journeys, but so much of the content was American. And I was like, I don't have a 401k. I don't know what a Roth backdoor is. What does that mean? Conversion ladders. We don't have like all their fancy capital gain. Everything was kind of irrelevant to the Australian market. And I sort of thought like, I just want someone to break it down. And then after thinking about that for long enough, I went, why don't I break it down? And I just had the Instagram and it was just all about turning the lights on in a really dark room. Like my parents don't invest. I didn't grow up around it. Uh, you know, my friends have parents that invested for them or they'd talk about it at the dinner table and that was just not not my family. And I just wanted to make it accessible for people who were like me and to make it easy and just less scary. Like I think you, even if you don't, and I don't recommend anyone invest in what I invest in because I think I haven't got the perfect portfolio or whatever the perfect portfolio is, but you see someone else investing and I'm no genius. So if I can do it, anyone else can do it. Probably better. Maybe have a better return than I've had. Yeah. And what do you find that a lot of your followers are mainly asking for? Like I find more times than not my followers and our followers, they're not asking for what do I invest in? Because mm. I think my mantra has been, just let me educate you enough to make your own decision. Yeah. 
Um, what's your audience after? I actually think much the same. I don't get a lot of tell me what to invest in questions. What I get a lot of is explain this, like explain how the first home super scheme works or what are your thoughts on investment bonds and stuff like that. And a lot of the time I just say, I don't know, like let's learn about it together. Like I'll do a post about it or I'll do a story about it. And I'm often on the learning journey as well. Like crypto is a great example. I had lots of questions like what is it? How does it work? And I was just on that education path as well. Mm. And it's kind of nice to to learn together and also to recognize that I think you don't stop. I think people wait to invest until they know everything and that's completely false. Just start because even the top financial advisors and fund managers, they would be out of a job if there wasn't still stuff to learn. Like otherwise they just create a portfolio, call it a day and go home. But the market changes, education changes, what we know changes, the world's changing. And so, yeah, I completely agree. Questions are more about how do I learn this for myself? We're creating little sophisticated financial literate Australians. We love that. Absolutely. Now, there's a question here and I'll tie it into you. So, Shani Shaw asks, how the heck uh, do we do this when you have a husband or partner involved and you have different upbringing and ideas about how to use money and investments and all that? So, she's asked that. Let me ask you, how have you navigated this with your partner? How do Mm. you guys manage money? Do we share accounts? Is it flatmates with benefits? Like, what's your <laughs> spectrum? <laughs> so I broke up with an ex-boyfriend over money. Um, it wasn't the only reason, but it was part of it. I think that money is the greatest cause of friction in relationships. I think my parents broke up and a lot of that angst was about money. And so for me, finding a partner that had the same values as me with money was so important because I didn't want that to be a source of friction in our relationship. And luckily, my partner and I are very similar money-wise. I would say Paul is a lot more risk-averse than I am. So I only got Paul investing this year uh, after significant massaging of that, <laughs> of that nudging him towards it. But he's like super, you know, he's really into it now and he has his own investing philosophy and goals and all that kind of stuff. But that ex-boyfriend, um, bless his cotton socks, I just, I remember him questioning me about what I was spending my money on. And I think that informed where we are now, which is that we split everything 50-50 because our incomes are roughly similar. And if our incomes were drastically different, I think splitting it proportionally is something that people can look at doing. Um, But for now, we just keep our finances separate because we're not married. And um, although we have an emergency fund for our dog, Pluto, that's in a joint account. And how long have you been together and living together? We've been together for two years, basically like a COVID couple. And we've Mm. been living together for, I think, a year and a bit now. Mm. See, that's the thing because I think once, like, that 18 months ticks over, like, under the law, you're basically codependent and quote-unquote married. So, will there be a discussion that, well, we're just going to throw everything and have a joint pot or, Mm. like, have you had any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, like, if we purchased a property or something together, it just becomes, you know, you have an offset, so everything wants, you want to keep as much money in the offset, Mm. blah, blah, blah. But 
um, we're just really open. Like we just talk about it. Like that's my throwaway is not come and split your finances half because my way is the best way. That's not it at all. I just think that people should talk about it. Maybe one of you pays for something, the other one pays for something. Maybe you have a joint credit card, maybe a joint bank account. It doesn't actually matter. I just think that there's a lot less likelihood of having an argument if... Yeah, I think I'm always in deep water, treading water without a life jacket when I'll talk about relationships and money. Um, but I kind of just would think if there's a system that works for both of you and there's no underlying resentment, mm. it probably is the right system. And I was just thinking like how a lot of people like break up over money I and I was just literally thinking this as you were talking. The money didn't break the relationship, quote unquote. It was the tipping point mm. because couples break up when they've got heaps of money. It's just a low hanging fruit of a tipping point, possibly. Where because the only reason I say that because you hear of couples, oh, we bloody have been together for years. We've had, always had no money and. You know, we got through it because we love each other. Like, was the relationship going to end anyway? We just needed some, uh, there was just this, always this thing about the money and it was just always pissing me off. You'd spend it all and hide it all. Mm. It's, I don't know. But it's do you reckon it's about the money or was it just about this lack of sync? The money's just a really great. And that's where I was kind of, what I said before, like mm. if there was some underlying resentment, that caused the relationship to finally crack. Yeah not the actual money because lots of relationships have broken down with Bill and Melinda Gates, richest couple on the world. Their relationship broke down. So money didn't cause that relationship to break down, I would imagine, because they've got lots of it. So I just think when there is money issues in any of our lives, it does bring an extra level of stress and anxiety and on edge and I would imagine if I was with somebody and the money thing, we didn't have much of it and they were keeping it or not abusing it or, or abusing it or I th- it just it adds to that friction of the relationship. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And I, I wonder like if you did an autopsy and anyone out there listening, maybe start a thread in the Facebook group, if you broke up with someone over money, a million years ago and you look back, you're probably saying, oh, gosh, I'd still break up with that person if we had a million dollars in the bank. You know what I mean? Like I just wonder. Yeah. Uh, I would love your Facebook group to do like a thread on like money disputes and like what's the – because I think couples – I did a TikTok video about this and I had 800,000 people be like, you're wrong or I completely agree with you. So mm. it's funny because I think it's – I mean, you can't escape it, right? It's like every couple has to deal with it in some way. But I think if you're not on the same page, um, find the compromise. You know, if you you want to invest everything and they don't, find an amount that works and take that approach to everything. Yeah, and I think I pissed off a lot of people in my book because <laughs> – What did you when, do, Glenn? Oh, gosh. Because um, <laughs> I'm like in my simple fundamentalist mind – the way I see the world. And we can only do things based on our own experience, right? But I know that it's not everyone's experience. So my kind of vibe is if, you're, if you've been living together for ages, if you're sharing everything together, even bodily fluids, why not the money? And because the law says that it's both of yours anyway, 
And that's why I'm like, you would think that it, it should cause more conversation to have a joint money system and more accountability to each other. And then I've resolved that if you want to do that and then if there was a $20,000 emergency fund, we both have $10,000 and a friend of mine, Laura, suggested this to me over a drink one night. We both have $10,000 in an emergency fund in our own name for quote unquote escape money or something like that. But then again, I've resolved just do whatever you want. I don't care. <laughs> as long as it works, I mean, and there's no underlying resentment. Yeah. Yeah. But I think to your point about worldviews, here's where I think the joint can be problematic because we yeah. all have our own value system with money. And if you have a joint account, and let's say, Glenn, hypothetically, we have a joint money account and we live together. But you really love books and I love Lego. And I spent all my personal income on Lego and you spend all your personal income on books. But I think books are stupid and you think Lego is dumb. And then that's, I think, where the friction is. You know, those like, oh, hide the parcels from my husband, you know, say they're gifts. Like that attitude, I think, it just like grosses me out because I'm like, how are you two together if that's the vibe? Yeah, and, and I think I think a lot of the time is where we're talking about the symptom, not the problem with this joint stuff. And mm-hmm. I think if you wanted to join your money and you did want the latitude to be able to have your own money and spend as much money on, you know, Lego and books or whatever, just agree to it. There's give and take. Um, And I think it was only last week's episode, you know, I said to John, I'm like, I I can't see that it would be helpful in your relationship if you told your wife, Amy, that if she's a spender, she can't spend any money and it's really strict. I mean, how's that going to go? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I just think um, communication's often the problem and often the solution. Yeah, very wise, Glenn. Oh, just have a system that works for both of you because I actually don't care what you do and as long as you've got a system that works for both of you and there's no underlying resentment, surely that's a win-win, right? Glenn James, not your money guru. I'm not your guru. <laughs> if you want me to be your guru, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm wild. Book two. (laughs) Book two. Hashtag I'm wild. Gosh. Okay. Scott Wood, mild saving addiction, implemented some focused savings for goals, such as paying off a mortgage, and find it hard to spend cash on myself sometimes. So, all the spenders out there like me, and you're a spender, Alex. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're thinking, um, what? (laughs) But for the savers out there, this is a real thing. And you need permission to spend sometimes. Mm. Is your partner a spender or a saver? Saver. Yeah. Mm. Interesting that um, you were saying he's not as risk tolerant as you Mm. and also a saver. Sometimes... That goes hand in hand. Yeah, I'd say there's a little bit of correlation there. But I think spending money is an act of self-care when done responsibly. Because Scott, I'm sure, has things he loves and things he enjoys doing. And I think if you're sometimes that waiting for the mortgage to be paid off, like, 
you wouldn't take that approach to life or I don't think you should take that approach to life. That's Scott, you do you, you know, live your best life if this is how you enjoy it. But I don't know, I feel like a lot of previous generations had that view of I'm going to work hard, I'm not going to spend any money on myself and then when I'm 65 I'll retire and that's when I'll spend money and have a good life. But your health and your children and your time and your availability and all these things are variables you have no control over. So I think you have to live your life and enjoy the journey as well. Mm. Yeah. I reckon this goes back to the basic rule of balance and what I do in my life um, I give safe spend in that order and it's balanced because if you have a look at, you know, let's have a look at these th- three things. If I'm just giving all my money away, I'm not balanced. So I'm not looking after future Glenn and I'm not enjoying life and taking care of my own household or whatever. Mm. If I'm saving all my money, well, it's all about me, me, me in terms of I need to amass as much wealth as possible. Mm at the detriment of helping other people along the way and also at the detriment of the self-care, the spending stuff. But if I'm spending all my money, you know, you're not saving for the future. You're not being generous. It's this gluttony consumption vibe, right? Mm. So I think um, what I would recommend Scott do is maybe get a pen and paper and write down give, save, spend and do a brain dump under each one like, what are some things that I can do under each column? And the money part doesn't have to be a lot of money because you said before the self-care thing, you know, spending money on myself. Well, Scott, you might find that you like to get a good book and go to a cafe and Mm. read, buy a coffee, buy lunch and spend an hour and a half there. You know, that could scratch the itch of having that fulfillment or it could be buying a $5,000 mountain bike and doing that. Like, I just think it comes down to balance and give yourself a bit of a break, take the foot off the gas um, and, yeah, maybe reassess some goals. Like, there was a um, – I think there was a thing. I'm going to draw it out. Um, health. And then – so, I'm going to do 12 o'clock. There's a clock health. And then at 3 o'clock, I'm going to do family um, at six o'clock, I'm going to do future at nine o'clock. I'm going to do, um, fun. So you could basically write a whole heap of different things. You could write spirituality or whatever, and then you draw a a kind of a line through. So it's like a, see that like a star. Mm -hmm. And then if in the zero, uh, in the very center was zero and the outside of the star was, 10, you could actually go around and rate where you are on each of these things and then draw the circle to connect the line and it'll kind of chart out a bit of a blob of, can you see that? Yeah. Maybe you can do a post about something like that because you're arty. I'll do a post about that. I like that. So, yeah. So, like I've just kind of, um, yeah, maybe it's just a a bit of a self-assessment of, And again, it all goes back to balance. Mm. That's what it does. All goes back to balance. Last question. I've had fun today. Thanks for hanging out. Oh, me too. This is a good chat. You're welcome to come back anytime. Ah, Just just, message me. Just ring. I mean, I I live in wait for a Glenn James text. (laughs) (laughs) 
I joined Alex the other day at the Australian Financial Review Super and Wealth Summit. We were on a panel together. Um, Glenn, which was I good. was there um, as a as a ring in um, because I was the least qualified, <laughs> least exciting person on that panel, and I was joined by like industry heavyweights: Glenn James, Kate Howard, Matt Leibovitz. Oh, I've uh, booked Kate to come on the podcast to well, talk about. Ethical investing. Oh, She's fantastic. So I'm waiting for that episode. I, I know your listeners will be as well. Seriously, you. I think you missed the pre-Zoom chat for the panel, but all the crap that she was saying about ethical investing, I'm like, shut up and come on my podcast. Like, yeah. So she's a Fidelity fund manager, manages huge like buckets of money for Fidelity and she's got some really good pragmatic, practical views, and I would say almost contrarian views around um, ethical investing mm. and what that world looks like. So, she's booked um, and I'm recording it um, this Friday. Okay, Rebecca, growing wealth on a small income slash investing for children and what's the safest way long-term to invest for children? So, so, yeah, do you want to tackle that one? I do not. <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> so I get this question and I always say, I don't know, and then I point them, there's like an ATO article about investing in, you know, income for minors and all this kind of stuff. But I'm so curious, Glenn, for your view on this because I think it's quite complicated. You know, you want to put it somewhere safe, then there's all these tax. Is this the kids thing? Yeah, there's all these tax yeah, obligations yeah, yeah. and then it's like tax yeah. at 40% or something crazy. So what do you yep. do? What, how do you, I don't have kids, but you know, maybe I'll invest in my dog. Yes. So I don't have uh, spawn, but I've got, niece. <laughs> I've got uh, a niece and two nephews. And what I do is I've got an investment bond um, for each child and I think think I, and again, it actually doesn't matter because I don't, I'm not going to talk about my own money anymore on here because it upsets too many people. Uh, I put a portion of money uh, in each bond every month. Now, the reason that I've done this is a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a separate account for each child. So, it's quarantined from my own wealth I don't have to worry about it on my own tax return. It's internally taxed. Number three, if I was to die prematurely, each child is listed at a, as a beneficiary on that bond. So, I've also made an election on the bond and it's a non-binding note on each bond that this money is to be used for the purposes of a home deposit. Um, and that's, you know, if I was to die, they could see that, you know, Glenn wanted this as a home deposit. Um, it is invested in the Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund inside the Generation Life Bond. And I like it because it's transparent, it's separate, it sits off my tax return, it's good for estate planning. So if I was to die, the kids will inherit that bond. On the other side of the coin, it is still my money and in my will... I have left money to the kids as well, but with the note that, you know, if you're locked up in jail or if you unfortunately become addicted to hard drugs or blow up your life somehow, whether it's your fault or not your fault, I don't know, like you don't get any of my money. 
So, because I don't want to, like, if one of the kids, you know, and this is horrendous to say, but accidentally got addicted to heroin, I, like, I don't want to give a kid or someone who's addicted to hardcore drugs money because I feel that could be more of a harm to them, for example. Mm. So, if that did happen or something went down, I could just remove their name off that bond and then it's still my money. So, the thing with the investment bond, they are internally taxed at the company tax rate of 30%, which might be a higher tax rate than your own tax rate. Now, that's not the be all and end all because you might just have the view that, well, I'm just paying a little bit extra to have the estate planning functionality and it's kept separate. Um, so, I mean, if I could go back to Rebecca's um, question and growing wealth on a small income, and I, and I want everyone, if you haven't already, please grab a copy of my book and the audio book is out um, tomorrow if you're listening to this live on the 1st of December. But in the book, I talked about this pyramid and it was based off Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, when we've got a smaller income, we've just got to be more acutely aware of our budget items because there's factually less money to put in places. So, you have to really be strategic with making sure you're not getting confused with luxuries and making them lower in the hierarchy and getting confused with a luxury as a basic need. So, what I would first and foremost say is with a smaller income and kids and a family, you need to worry about you and the health of your own, the financial health of your own life first. Because if you're strong financially and you grow your own wealth financially, the kids will end up benefiting anyway. Even if, you know, if you've got three-year-old kids and you spend the next 10 years building up your life, doing your career, doing all that, the kids are 13 years old or something like that, you've got the banging income and you've done things right, building it the right way, well, you can always do catch up money for the kids. So, I would encourage everyone to be looking to the future with their money and wanting to do stuff for their kids. But in some instances, we need to put ourselves first because the healthier we are, the stronger we can be for the future and then we can worry about the kids. So, I just want to really caution like, if you're struggling to make ends meet week on week at the moment, well, we're probably not investing for the kids at the moment. Mm. Put your air vent. What's it? Put your the drop down mask, mask on first. On first, before you put it on someone else. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I, I didn't want to be a bit of a downer with that kind of question, um, but I think kind of that's the facts of the matter. Mm. So, yeah. Do you have any follow-up points or let me ask you a question. Is there anything that you haven't said on this episode that you think is important that you say? What wise words are you leaving with us? I'm a, I, love a, I love a really lame saying. Like I love lame sayings. So, and there's like always the classic investing ones. Don't put your eggs in one basket. Um, you know, I like the, the put your air mask on first before you put it on someone else. But I think with all that, um, I don't think it was a downer. 
discipline. Mm. I think that's a really important thing. I think parents can be so self-sacrificial and you doing well as a parent is a gift to your kids financially. Okay. And a question, Mm. you know, if you were on a low income uh, at the moment and you've got kids and you want to grow wealth and all that stuff, Mm. there is this question like, and you touched on it before about self-care. Like, are you going to be a better parent if you spent $40 on something that gives you a freaking break and lets you relax for 10 minutes as opposed to investing that? Like, and I'm not talking about forever and I'm not saying don't invest, but I'm saying let's be real. Mm. Life can be crap. Life can be tough. Mm. I want to get through the freaking year first and survive and look after yourself before you worry about other people because the stronger you are, the more emotionally well you are from some self-care. That's investing in your kids because you're not as strung strung up as a parent. I don't know. We probably should stop talking about kids and relationships when I'm involved. But um, When neither of us have kidlets or spawn, as you said. Yeah, but we're here now. (laughs) Not your guru. I'm not your guru, everyone. <laughs> Maybe we should stop uh, dispelling advice about things that we <laughs> don't I know. personally have experience in. I, I, I said you're welcome back anytime, but we'll probably get like... Perhaps we can do an episode, medical advice. Join Alex and Glenn, completely yeah. uneducated do- do- armchair doctors. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, we'll leave it there, everyone. Uh, you can follow Alex Nikolic at Broke Girl Wealth on Instagram. Uh, you can get involved with everything she's doing there. You can hang out with us in the Facebook group. And I look forward to seeing everyone soon. If you're listening to this live, we're in Sydney this Friday night. And then we're in Melbourne next Friday night. Um, did you want to come along to Sydney? Yeah. Or are you busy Friday night? I will. If I'm free, I'll be there, Glenn. All right, I'll email you a private code. Um, So there we go. All right, peeps, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.